think a lot of a lot of things, um, uh, or I guess I should start by saying, um, so Michael and I kind of feel like one of our ways that we can be. Um, uh, fulfill our, our call in life is to work through our um, community school district. Um, and like a lot of things, this isn't something that we kind of set out with this big grand strategy for what we're, how we were going to do, you know, be God's hands and feet in the city of Iowa City. We sort of stumbled into it, frankly. You know, our kids are in public schools here in Iowa City, and um, we had this instance where um, our the school that we were in was going to be closed. And so that was just the first little step of kind of becoming more involved in kind of public decision making and deliberation and, and some of how that played out. Um, for Michael, what that ended up being was that he started um, attending a lot of school board meetings and he started um, going to a lot of listening posts as redistricting was happening. And, you know, one of his great skill sets is, is having his philosophy background is that I think he's really good at kind of understanding kind of overarching notions of value and how values are debated in a public space and um, really understanding kind of that core concept and then how that applies to not just, you know, our precious snowflakes, but also, you know, children in our community that don't have parents that have the time to come to school board meetings and because they're they're working a lot or, you know, they just, you know, for whatever reason can't do that and how we need to make sure that those kids um, also have the same opportunities that our children have, whether that be through, um, you know, busing to make sure that they can get to school safely whether that mean making sure that um, children, you know, all children have the ability to, you know, get to school safely and quickly, that they have teachers that understand their unique needs um, and things like that. So, um, you know, some of how that plays out then for, for Michael at least was, you know, like again, being part of these listening posts, being part of public debates that were happening in, on, you know, online forums or through emails to um, decision makers to, um, he's also part of our um, district, our DPO, or so there's PTO and then there's DPO, which is district parent parent organization, which takes place at kind of a, a broader community level. And then most recently, um, he was um, a parent who sat in on the hiring of our new school principal, which um, I didn't think of that necessarily as like this living out of kind of caring for, um, you know, all the kids in our school district, but, you know, he was pretty instrumental in making sure that we hired in a teacher that um, resembled a lot of the students in our population group as well as had experience working with um, the population group that's in our particular school. And so that's something I'm proud that um, he's done and that, that we've been able to be a part of. And Rebecca has uh, also has used her gifts and talents to, to do this work as well. Um, and it's it's not something that she, you know, developed these skill sets and then started doing them, but rather it's things that are already latent and there. Uh, so she she's very good at organization, and so she serves on our, our PTO, uh, and she does a lot of the organization work for making things run well for our, our parent-teacher organization. Uh, she has volunteered and, and classrooms uh, throughout our kids' education, and now that she's working full time, she she will volunteer on field trips, and and she's also good at, at making sure uh, the kids stay in line when she's <laughs> field trip. Um, but she, one of her most recent activities, she started doing this in the fall, was a, uh, a let me run. It's sort of like boys on the run uh, event.
event, and and she's been. It's or, sorry. It's it's like girls on the run except for boys. Um, and uh, and we have two boys who are participating in it, but uh, it emphasizes the a lot of values that that young boys need to need to hear about uh, giving them emotional vocabulary to talk about what they're feeling and experiencing and how to look out for those who are struggling uh, and and how to how to be a good friend to to those who may maybe are excluded in in a school setting and it gives them language and a vocabulary doing that while also emphasizing positive physical uh, health um, and so Rebecca was uh, instrumental and developing that program which she's a active runner and and spends a lot of active time uh, on her and running that's been really important to her so it's sort of a, a skill that she she has developed over time and then she is and then parlaying that into to serving others. And that's often how I think these sorts of things go, where uh, it isn't something that she set out, oh, I want to create this running club, but rather it was she saw an opportunity uh, just being there in the midst of the situation. And, and, and I do think that these are driven by a lot of our theological commitments as well, uh, seeing value and, and the image of God and all of our school kids, not just in my, our, our little snowflakes, as Rebecca said, um, but, but in all, all children, and then to advocate on behalf of all children because of that, that insight, and, and we, I often get to talk about that when people ask me, why are you doing this, you know, and then I'll often talk about that, and so I think that it's been fruitful to that end, so, but that's what we wanted to share, so, thank you. Thank you, Michael and Rebecca. We'll get to hear a little bit more as we dig into today's passage, um, how God might encourage you to think about the opportunities he places in your life, where he has put you, the life that he has assigned you. Let me start kind of a bit of a, a turn here, but this passage we're looking at today is, is really in some ways deeply personal to me in my background. Um, I'm what I have now categorized myself as a third culture kid. The third culture kid has often been a term used for missionary kids. Missionary kids who grew up in a country that was not their own, uh, living in a different culture, and yet essentially become like that culture. And maybe they go back to their home culture, let's say it's America, to visit, but they never really lived there. And so that's, the American culture is a part of their culture, and yet they may feel most at home in the mission field culture where they live. And so they can not feel like the mission field culture, they can not feel like their parents' home culture, and it becomes like a third, a third culture. They become their own category of culture. Uh, a lot of immigrant kids today would, would also be classified under that category where they uh, immigrate to a country, let's say they immigrate to the States, let's say they immigrate from Vietnam, and so they have this Vietnamese culture, but they don't feel so connected to that anymore, and they also have this American culture, yet they don't necessarily feel completely connected to that, and they have this now third culture. And that's a lot like what it was like for me. I grew up in Hong Kong, yet I wasn't really, I didn't feel at home with the local Hong Kong culture. I didn't really feel at home with the Western kids I went to school with in international schools. I was a third culture kid. And it's funny that it really took me till 
this last time living in Hong Kong before Iowa that that kind of dawned on me. And the reason why I share that is because uh, I think when we talk about calling and we look at this passage about living the life that God has assigned you, what we'll see as a theme in there is this tendency for all of us as human beings to find our identity in our circumstances rather than in God. And I know that for myself, that, that has been a theme in my life where struggling to find God as my home. And maybe not, I wouldn't even say struggle, that that is very much a reality to me because, because of that third culture kid feeling inside of me that I strongly recognize that God is my home. Um, there's not really a place or a country or city that feels like home or people group who necessarily feel like home, that God is my home, that God's people is my home. And yet that's, I think, a struggle for all of us. We're seeking to find that place or that people or that job that will give us that sense of identity, that sense of belonging. And so the main idea we're going to look at from this passage today is this. Let's remain in the circumstances which God has called us because we are bought with a price and time is short. Let's remain in the circumstances where God has called us because we are bought with a price and time is short. I think to look at it more from the negative side of things, perhaps the ways in which we live out life in this world or maybe even our own sinful tendency is that in today's time, this, I think there is an emphasis on self-actualization. And this emphasis on self-actualization in a very mobile society means that um, there can be this desire to, to move around and, and find you know, the thing that makes us who we are, that gives us that sense of meaning and purpose. It could mean changing jobs frequently to, to find that thing that will make us feel at home. And on another level, there's obviously this always a temptation and idol towards success. And sometimes when you have an idol of success, it can mean you can be taking this path almost mindlessly of like, well, this is the path to success and I must take step A, step B, step C, and it's almost just like it's predetermined if that's the particular idea of success that you have. Or we make an idol of self-actualization, then again, we can unnecessarily move from thing to thing, from place to place, from job to job. Again, searching for that sense of belonging, purpose, or meaning. And so let's explore this passage a bit and see how it challenges some of those um, feelings that we have in today's society. And this first part of the main idea is let's remain in the circumstances where God has called us. In case it wasn't obvious from the reading again, I'm just going to read four verses from today's passage that essentially echo the same thing over and over again. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Verse 26, which wasn't read earlier, says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
So in case you doubted, that was kind of the main point in this passage. It's echoed again and again and again. Paul is stressing this idea of remaining in the place in which God has called you. So let's take a, take a look at kind of more of the details of what he says around that. Verse 17. Again, you heard the part about remaining where God has called you. And he says, he continues on in verse 18 to say this. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him seek circumcision. Let him not. Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So, when in this verse it talks about when at the time you were called, were you circumcised or uncircumcised? That call that he's referenced here is that call of the gospel, being called to relationship with God for the first time. And he's saying, when you came into relationship with God for the first time, were you circumcised or uncircumcised? Don't worry about it. Neither thing matters. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. And you have to remember, right, the Christian faith was a, came out of the Jewish faith. And so the word spoken here is to a culture that is deeply, a deeply Jewish background. Circumcision is a big deal. And for Paul to say, don't even worry about that, whether you're circumcised or not. That's just not important. That would have been shocking to the culture of the time. Say, but wait, this was the primary sign that I belong to the people of God. And so the people with Jewish background would have said, well, how can you say this is not important anymore? Or maybe even people with a background that wasn't Jewish, but they understood the Jewishness of the Christian faith, they would ask, why, why, why is this not important anymore? Look at all my Jewish uh, Christian believers, Christ followers, they, they have this sign. Why do I not get to bear this sign as well? Does this make me like a second-class Christian, a second-class Christ follower? And yet Paul says, it's not that important. Don't try to be circumcised if you're not. Don't try to be uncircumcised, which I don't even know how you do that, but don't try to be uncircumcised if you are circumcised. In, the, in our Christian culture, we have plenty of debates and fights and church splits over baptism. And that's the equivalent, right? Circumcision is this entering into the people of God, initiation into the people of God. Baptism is the same thing in Christian culture. And we can have all these fights about, oh, it's got to be infant baptism. And no, it's got to be believer's baptism. Oh, that infant baptism you had, that doesn't count. You need to be believer's baptized now that you're an adult. And we have all these fights about it. And if we apply the same logic to what Paul says here, we say... In some sense, ultimately, it's not that important. It sounds strange for even me as a pastor to say those words out loud, but that's the logic of this passage. Now remember that if we take it as a broad, broader category, circumcision is this primary sign of your people group. And not only your people group, your religion. That's the thing about the Jewish people, right? The, the, the nation, the geopolitical nation was the same as the faith. So it was this primary sign of the people group you're a part of and the religion, the God that you believed in. And Paul's saying, what is important is your calling to relationship with God. Not this sign that you have of what people group you're a part of or what 
um, the sign of what faith you are a part of. What matters is your calling in God to himself. He continues to a, a really a different category. Verse 20 and on. says, again, 20 says, Remain in the condition in which, he was, in, in which you were called. Verse 21, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Parenthesis, but if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 22, for he who has called in the he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. If you're unfamiliar with the word bondservant, another translation for that word would be slave. So again, okay, a different category, slave or free. That's a pretty big deal, right? Even if we understand that slavery in the biblical times is not the same as the slavery in American history. But still, to essentially be indentured servants, that's certainly not as good as being free. And so it's, it's a big deal, and yet somehow Paul is saying it's not that important, ultimately. Paul again is saying the most important thing is to remain with God. Now, it doesn't mean that we should belittle social justice endeavors in this world. It doesn't mean that we should belittle activism in the world throughout history. But it means that we need the foundation of our relationship with God to uphold us and to empower us. That we need that relationship with God to give us perspective and to sustain us. That we need his strength. There was an article in New York Times just about a month ago. And it was titled, They Push, They Protest, and Many Activists Privately Suffer as a Result. And it gives this in-depth coverage, as New York Times articles are good at doing, about burnout amongst activists. And here's a quote from the beginning of the article. She lay curled in bed for days, paralyzed by the stresses of a life that she felt had chosen her as much as she had chosen it. Miss Yates would also feel the pressures of a job that seemed unrelenting, responding repeatedly to the deaths of black residents in communities across America, struggling to win policy reforms that would benefit black people, and rallying others to support her causes. And then as last year wound down and Miss Yates felt so depressed that she could not get out of bed, she was reminded of the most dire consequence of an activist's life, untimely death. Our relationship with God is vital to our well-being. And again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be active in engaging in social issues there's a reality to the unrelenting brokenness of this world and that we need to be founded upon the sure foundation of Christ to help us in that endeavor to to engage and express our faith in this world. Sometimes we can be led to think if, if we just if we just get rid of all the injustices of this world, or maybe even if we just get rid of this one injustice in this world, then everything will be okay. Or perhaps in the last category, if I, if I can just belong to this group of per- people, if I can just bear this one sign of being a part of this group, then everything will be okay. 
lead ourselves to believe these things and forget and lose perspective on what God calls us to. Paul continues in a different category. I didn't really give the context for 1 Corinthians 7. It's really a very strange passage. I encourage you to read it. This primary topic in 1 Corinthians 7 is about singleness and marriage and what is appropriate given our faith in God, given our calling from God. And the main section that was read today had to was kind of like this little excursus where Paul goes like, let me go 30,000 feet for a little bit and then come back to this issue of marriage. So he comes back to the issue of marriage here in verse 25, and he says this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as the one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the dis- present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Let's think about this category of singleness and marriage. It's a big deal, again. It's a big deal now. Most people would agree with that. It was, I would say, an even bigger deal back in New Testament times. It was a bigger deal back then because even in a much greater way than we can imagine in today's society, your, your marital status determined the group of people that you hung out with, that you were almost allowed to hang out with. It determined your economic viability as a person. It determined your status within society. So if there's a, a person who's single here and, and they feel like, I feel less than and I feel judged by society because I am single, I don't know, multiply that by 10 times in terms of how they would have felt in the biblical times. And again, it, it points to this feeling that we can have if, if only I was, had that special person in my life and everything will be okay. If I only have that societal status, that relationship, then everything will be okay. Verse 31 in NIV translation, I, I like, it kind of opens up more understanding by its translation. It says this, those who use the things of the world, we should be those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. trying to put our life in perspective and remind us our calling from God is the primary filter through which we understand everything else. And we could even think for a moment, it seems like Paul is making light of slavery and freedom, making light of singleness and marriage, making light of grief and happiness, making light of poverty and wealth. And again, he's not so much making light of those putting them in perspective for those who are Christ followers. He is calling us to live not just for this world because this world in its present form is passing away, but to live calling us to live for the world and life that is to come to live with a sense of eternity in mind. 
again, it's not an excuse to belittle injustices people face, suffering that they go through, longings that they have that are not met by just spiritualizing it away. Oh, don't worry about it. There's eternity. Like that's not the point of this passage. We are still called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Pastor and author Francis Chan had a, a book that he wrote with his, his wife, and a marriage book, and it's called You and Me Forever, Marriage in Light of Eternity. Now, what I thought that was really good about the book was that it really it took the truths of this passage and applied it to marriage. He asks the reader to think about marriage in light of the shortness of time in this life. To think of marriage in the light of how this present life is passing away. To think of marriage in light of how we are called to be a part of God's mission. To think of marriage in, with eternity in mind. And Chan tackles sort of this overly romanticized view of marriage that we have in this world. This idea that if we find the perfect soulmate, then, then there'll be no problems in marriage. Which is a funny thing, because just look at the data, right? The data's not great. But somehow it doesn't take away our over-romanticized view of marriage. And I, I saw, really, what I thought was a funny story as an example of this. But there was this woman, um, I saw on the news this week, a woman in England... Britain, I don't know, somewhere in the UK, some British person, where she decided to give up paying her mortgage on her apartment because it was more important to go to all the destination weddings and be a bridesmaid in all the weddings that she was invited to. Not, I don't know, maybe I'm just the wrong generation, but it just seems crazy to me. But she thought, I need to be at these destination weddings. I need to be a bridesmaid if I'm invited. And if you've done a few of those, you understand how it really adds up. It becomes very expensive. But apparently for her, her sense of belonging, her loyalty to her friends, her, her idea of being at these romantic weddings, even if she was not the star, that that was more important and could overcome the pain of moving home with mom and dad, which is what she did. Her choice, anyway, was a sign of still this overly romanticized view of marriage in this world. Chan also tries to, to tackle the, the idolatry of marriage that, that Christians can have in a sense where the importance that we put on marriage takes precedent over understanding God's call in our life. Yes, if we are married, then that is a part of our calling. And we're to honor that marriage. And I, and I think Chan does a great job of talking about living on mission together. Not just to abandon your spouse and be like, I'm on mission. I'm going to Africa. Forget you. But to be on mission together. And yet it's, it's true. I think it's easy to put marriage so high up on the priority list that we don't even ask the question, what is God calling us to do as a couple together in this world? That was a good challenge. And I think a good illustration of, of this passage being put into practice. But I think when my wife and I read it, we're both kind of counsely types, I think our main objection to the book was that it had an overly romanticized view of mission. Almost implicitly saying, if you put God's mission first together, then you won't have any problems in your marriage. And I'm like, uh, I don't think it's that simple. 
You know, I think you can be on mission with God as a couple and still struggle in your marriage. Like, let's just talk about communication, right? Like, maybe it's difficult to get on the same page as being on mission together because you can't communicate well. Well, then you're going to have to work on communication first. You can't just be like, let's have eternity in view and let's do God's mission and forget this communication stuff. And I don't think he would say that, but it was almost sort of implicitly, or at least he didn't say enough to the other side to, to remind people, you got to work on your marriage still. And I think, again, it's a, it's a good illustration of the possible misapplication of a passage like this, where we then just belittle activism or, or mourning or happiness or marriage or singleness. Again, that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is to put things in perspective and to remind us to ground ourselves on the foundation of God's calling us to relationship with him and grounding us in the truth that in God's providence, he has put us somewhere in a certain context for a reason. And we should consider that. But of course, Paul, as he always does, points us back to the gospel that we should remain in the circumstances in which God has called us because we are bought with a price, because the time is short. He points us back to Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us, for points us to the resurrection of the dead. Just with this brief phrase, we are bought with a price. We are a ransom people that without God's sacrifice, we would still be separated from relationship with God, that it is through the gospel through which we receive life and then are sent out to live a life for God. And it's interesting to think about the time being short. Yes, I think the apostles and the disciples thought that it was possible that Christ would come back in their lifetime. You know, it's 2,000 years later and we're like, is the time really short, Paul? Like, maybe you got that wrong. But the fact is, we don't know. Scripture teaches us that Christ could come back in any time to finish his work, to eradicate all evil and suffering from this world, to hold humanity accountable for being stewards of this world, being stewards of the life that he has given us. And so it could be in this lifetime for us. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe it'll be another 2,000 years. But the reality is Christ says, I could return at any time. Be ready. Live a life as of this time, this life you have, this 80 years you have, let's say. It is short. It is short compared to eternity. make a turn towards application. Let me say this. I really like verse 24. It says, Paul says this idea of remaining where you have been called in a slightly different way. He says, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. There let him remain with God. In the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He says, friends, stay where you were called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with him at your side. 
Remain with God. God is there with you. I think that's just such a great way to put it, to remind us again, first and foremost, it's abiding in Christ. It's remaining with God. It's being founded on that relationship with God. That first and foremost calling that we have. That is what is important. We think our circumstances are what's important. But God says, putting your identity in God and is calling you to himself. That is what is most important. And is when we have remained with God that we can then make sense of all the other decisions we have to make in life. And so as we think about applications, I'm just, everyone's life is so different, so it's hard to make specific applications. But I want to ask you these four questions, okay? How are you finding your identity in circumstances? How are you finding your identity in circumstances? Second question. How is your finding your identity in circumstances leading you to flee from where God has put you? How is your finding your identity in your circumstances leading you to flee from where God has put you? Where God has put you is very broad. I don't, I don't necessarily mean Iowa City, but it could be a job, it could be marital status, it could be, it could be so many things. Question number three. How do you need to take seriously God's providence in where he has put you? How do you need to take seriously God's providence in where he has put you? A word to those of you who know you're only here for a certain amount of time. Don't let that be a reason to just be like, ah, I'll just put my faith on hold right now. I'll just go to church. But, you know, that's good enough. I got so many projects to do, so many exams to study for. Like, this is not a time to put your faith on hold. What are the places, this is really a sub-question, what are the places he is calling you to remain with him in? Last question. How do you need to find more deeply your identity in God such that you are at peace with the circumstances you are in? How do you need to find more deeply your identity in God such that you are at peace with the circumstances in which God has put you? Let me say this. Again, what I say here, what Paul is saying here is not to belittle that we experience in this life, whether it's our own sin or the suffering we experience as a result of other people's sin or simply suffering we experience because the world is broken. It is not to belittle those things when Paul says, mourn as those who do not mourn. He's not saying don't mourn. He's saying remember God's call in your life. Remember God's love for you. God is not anti-change. Don't over-apply the truth of this passage and therefore never seek any change in your life. That's not, that's not what this passage is about. Paul said to the slave, if you can get freedom, get it, go for it, attain it. But he's saying, put first your identity in God. He says, if you are a slave, remember first and foremost, you are free in God. 
if you are free, which is all of us, remember you are slave to God. That is our primary identity. We are servants of the living God. Our identity is in God first and everything else follows. So this passage asks us to go to the heart level, the identity level first, and then see where that works out in our life. To to take seriously and examine, is the change we're seeking because of God's calling or because of a reaction to our circumstances? Are you seeking a change because God is calling you to change or simply because you're reacting to the circumstances around you? God calls you, then go, then change. But if you've left God out of that equation, then go back to God and ask him, where are you calling me, God? Go back to your relationship with God first and ask that question of him. My prayer for you is that you find yourself first and foremost in God and in God's calling for you. That you experience the freedom that comes with knowing God has called me here. Whatever here means. To experience the peace that comes with that. Even when all of life's brokenness continues to throw its punches at you. You can say, I feel that suffering, Lord, but at the same time, I'm at peace because you have called me to be here and I'm founded upon your love. That's my hope for you, that you find yourself in God and not your circumstances, that you taste the freedom of God's love for you in your life. Let's pray.